So I made, I made the grave mistake this week of uh, preparing a pretty lengthy sermon, uh, especially in light of it being, being Communion Sunday. So I don't know how this is going to turn out. I really tried to condense this sermon uh, during the week the best that I possibly could um, in the time space that we have allowed. I just don't know I'm gonna, if I'm going to be able to do it. Um, so here's what's going to happen. I'm going to try to breeze through this thing. But at the same time, this, this, there's a lot of stuff in this sermon that I particularly really, really want to emphasize. So even trying to breeze through it, I may not be able to complete it. So if I can't complete it, if it seems like at some point I've just stopped in the middle of a sentence or something, that's what's going on. We'll, we'll cut it short and, uh, and uh, pick it up next week. I noticed there's a clock back there. Um, <laughs> back there in the front of the church. I'm assuming that's for the pastor's benefit. But anyway, I'll try, to, I'll try my best to get through it and, and, and uh, get us out of here just as, soon as, just as soon as I possibly can. This is one of those weird days. This is one of those uh, strange days that doesn't happen very often we, uh, where we celebrate a major national holiday and it just happens to be on Sunday. And as we talked about, as Paulette talked about and Kevin talked about, it's, we all know it's July 4th. It's Independence Day. Uh, this is the day that we celebrate as America, as a culture. We celebrate our freedom. We celebrate our independence. We ce celebrate our independence from British rule, uh, where we declared ourselves as a as as a as a single nation and then separated from from like Paulette said, Great Britain. We celebrate the signing of the Declaration of Independence and all that good stuff. All that stuff you guys have known about since since you were since you were Parker's age or before. As Christians, we celebrate freedom too, and just as freedom is a major theme for July 4th for Independence Day. Freedom for Christians, those who have, have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, is also a major theme. Uh, but they're not exactly the same. As a matter of fact, really, they're nothing, they're nothing alike whatsoever. It's a different type of freedom. And that's what I want to talk to you guys about today, is this idea, this idea of Christian freedom. Again, those of us who have submitted to the authority of Jesus live in that freedom. And, um, but it's not the freedom from, it, it's not freedom from earthly rulers, for example, as we think about on July 4th. And it's not, uh, it's not freedom, it's certainly not freedom to live our lives um, as we pick and choose to live. It's a different kind, and there's, there's two things, and doggone it, I think Paulette might have taken a look at my sermon notes because she hit on one of them earlier in, uh, in her children's sermon. But one of the things that we are free from, there's a couple of them that I want to mention. The number one thing that comes to mind is we are free, Paulette, from, like you said, from the power of sin in our lives. And that may not seem to us on the surface to be, you know, something necessarily that big, especially if we've been sitting in these pews for a long time. But that's a big thing. What does that mean when we, when we say that we have freedom from the power of sin in our lives? It means we're not controlled by it. I don't know about you guys, but before I had Christ in my life, sin ran my life. Sin ran my heart. Sin ran the way that I think. Sin certainly ran the way that I talked a lot of times and the way that I acted and certainly in the way that I treated people. Um, that's what sin does. That's what sin looks like. I'm free today. I'm free today from that kind of power. I'm free from that selfishness. I'm not completely unselfish, but I'm a little less selfish than I used to be. I am free, and you guys are free from the power of sin, from that desire to sin, from that desire that pulls us away from the will of God that we know so is controlled so, so many people. We don't have that anymore. Because of what Christ has done for us, we are completely free from that power. Does that mean we're never going to sin again? Probably not. Probably not. But we know right from wrong a lot of times. 
we do have the freedom to make that choice, of course, but it does not have the power over us that it used to in our lives. That's very, very important. The second thing, maybe even more importantly, I don't know how to, how to gauge these things or what's, what's more important than the other, but we are also free from God's judgment. We are free not because of anything that we have done, not because of anything we have earned, but we are free simply because of faith. That is a primary Protestant teaching. That's a primary Methodist teaching. All Protestant denominations across, across the spectrum believe in this one thing, that we are saved, that we are justified, that we are made righteous in the eyes of God, that we are reconciled to God because of one thing and one thing only, our belief, our faith in what Christ has done for us. Nothing that we've done, nothing that we haven't done, nothing we can do in the future or not do in the future. Simple, simple faith. Simple, simple faith is what justifies us and gives us that freedom from the judgment of God. Nothing else. That is one of the most scandalous aspects of Christianity, if you think about it. And it's such a powerful thing. And that, folks, that is a reason to celebrate. That is a reason to celebrate. This is powerful. This is life-changing stuff. Absolutely life-changing stuff. So the question kind of becomes, what do we do with this freedom? What do we do with this freedom? And I believe that I actually touched on this scripture last week briefly. And uh, I want to dive a little bit more into it this week, and I want to support it by some more scripture. So if you want to take a look at your Bible, if you want to take a look at your screen, we're going to be reading two verses from Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, and it's verses 13 and 14. And again, um, if you guys have sat in church pews for, very, for any amount of time, y'all have probably heard these scriptures before. But you really can't hear them enough, in my opinion. Because it, it, it guides us. It, it, it gives us, it, it, it tells us God's will for our lives through this freedom that we have, all that from the power of sin. What do we do with this? That's a, that's a lot of freedom. Do we just keep on living the way that we've been living? Well, Paul writes about that, starting in verse 13. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul writes, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. That's the justification we're talking about. We are justified, we're saved from God's judgment, all of that stuff. We are reconciled to God through that justification. Justification. You were called to be free. But don't use your freedom, Paul says, to indulge the flesh. Rather, and here it is, serve one another humbly, in love. This may sound really, really familiar for you guys who were here last week. Verse 14, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. What is it, church? Love your neighbor as itself. Doesn't that sound vaguely familiar to us? Sure, we've kind of touched on this for the last, for the last three weeks. It's the word of God for the people of God. So again, you know, like we talked about last week, Jesus said these were, this was the greatest commandment too, and that all the laws and the law, the laws and all the prophets hinge on these things: loving God and loving neighbor. Um, and again, I mentioned this briefly last week, and Paul reaffirms Jesus's words um, that we talked about back then. Let me read to you the New Revised Standard Version translation of this particular verse, because this one really kind of this one really kind of packs a punch, maybe a little bigger punch than the, than the NIV that we're reading from. NRSV translates it as this. You are called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence. But through love, become slaves to one another. That's a bigger, that packs a, lot, a bigger punch, doesn't it? 
become slaves to one another. Use that freedom to love, serve, and to actually become slaves to one another. I want to give you guys several scriptures today that I hope is going to challenge you and I hope um, to understand and to apply these ideas to our daily lives. The idea of Christian love, serving others in love, is a simple idea, but it's not an easy one. It's not an easy one for us to follow. As much as I love the idea of the freedom that we receive through our faith, through our justification, that gift from God that we talked about in the beginning, I also think that we recognize that the gospel of Christ doesn't end there. The gospel of Jesus Christ does not end at our justification. It does not end at forgiveness. It does not end at, at uh, being reconciled. It's just the beginning. The gospel of Christ is much bigger. The gospel of Christ is this invitation to join God in, 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 in showing the world his kingdom, what his kingdom looks like, what his people look like. Let me kind of give you an idea of what I'm talking about. There's a scripture that every person in here knows, and I would call this the beginning of the gospel. I would call this, this because it's kind of like the first half of the gospel. All of you know this one, and it's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life or everlasting life. That's where we get, that's, that's where we're reconciled. Simple belief. That's where our justification comes from. That's where our freedom comes from. Those who believe in him. Simple, simple, simple belief. Here's what I would say is the second part of the gospel, and it's a very, very easy verse to remember. You probably don't know it by heart, but when I tell you where it's located, you'll, you'll, you'll probably never forget it. It's 1 John 3.16. 1 John 3.16. And you don't have to turn there. And I have told him to put it up on, up on the screen. But I want to read it to you. 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. This is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. There is what I would call the second half of the gospel. That is our gospel call. Laying down our lives for one another serving one another, using our freedom that we have through Christ to love and serve one another. That verse says laying down your lives. Now when we see that, a lot of us may think, you know, literally taking a bullet for somebody. Maybe it is. Maybe, maybe one of us have to do that. There's certainly been a lot of martyrs throughout Christian history. But what this means to give up our lives is to give up our selfishness. To give up our sinfulness. To give up our individualism. To give up my idea of thinking that I'm in the center of the universe and focusing my love, my efforts on other people. That's what it looks like for us to give up our lives. That's what it looks like to serve, as Paul wrote, one another in love. That's how we use our freedom. That's how we use that freedom, Paulette, from the power of sin in our lives. To become more like Christ, to think more like Christ, to act more like Christ. To give up me, my selfishness, my ego for the sake of other people. Now remember that, 1 John 3, 16. These are powerful words, laying down your life for, what, for other people. You say, you know, we talked about love, this idea of love for a couple weeks. You say, well, pastor, I love my neighbors. I love my neighbors. I don't hurt anybody. I don't, I don't mistreat anybody. And maybe we don't. Maybe we don't consciously mistreat people. But do we truly love all of those that we encounter on a daily basis? Do we truly give up our lives 
for those that we encounter on a daily basis? How do we respond to those people that we meet who are created in the image of God as we go about our daily lives? I'm going to ask you guys a question. I want you guys to be honest with yourselves. Please do not shout out your answers. Ask yourselves this. Who are some of the everyday people that rub you the wrong way? Who are some of the folks that you run into maybe in your deep personal lives or maybe it's just folks on the street? Maybe it's a generalized group of people. Who are the people in your life that rub you the wrong way? Don't lie. Every person in this room has got them, pastor included. There are people in our lives that rub us the wrong way. How do I treat those people? What are the characteristics of those people? And all of us have, unfortunately. So we're all, we're all in the same boat on that one. I want to point out a few very, very powerful words from Jesus from uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. Again, you don't have to turn to it if you don't want to. I'm sure most of you have heard these before. But I want to show you again what Jesus, what the Scriptures are talking about, what John's talking about. When he says, lay down your lives for other people. Giving up our selfishness. Using our freedom granted through Christ to love and serve. Jesus picks us apart in Matthew chapter 25. He gets down to the right to the heart of the matter. In 25, uh, verse 35, Christ says this. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. The righteous will answer Christ, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty, give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you also did it to me. Those are powerful, powerful, powerful words from Christ. I've noticed in the last <clears throat> three weeks since we moved to Valdosta that there is a much larger and much vis more visible homeless population in this area uh, than there is in the area that I came from. And I don't, what I'm about to tell you, I don't tell you this to toot my own horn by any stretch of the imagination. It's just a story. But my, my wife will tell you this is something that's always just, just grabbed me by the heart. I can't stand, I can't stand to see people standing on the street corner with a sign. And we see a lot of, and I've seen a lot of them since we've been here, man. A lot of them. It breaks my heart. The first thing that enters my mind is not, well, that person's lazy, that person needs to get a job. That type of thing. My, my first question that comes into my mind is, what put that person in that position? Why is that person there? Because I can guarantee you, when, this, that when that woman or man was five years old, they never imagined they would be standing on a street corner by the Austin, Georgia, holding up a sign. You say, well, I don't give them money because they're going to go buy drugs, they're going to buy something. I don't really care. If I give them these guys a couple bucks, yeah, they may go buy a beer. They also may go buy a pack of crackers and a Coke. I don't know. What concerns me, what bothers me, and I think what concerns Christ is the condition of our hearts, first and foremost, when we see people in these positions. 
So really, if we have the heart and mind of Christ, really our first thing shouldn't be, go, shouldn't be number one to avoid that necessarily. I ain't saying you've got to feed everybody that you see. But where does our heart and our mind go to when we see the hungry, when we see the naked, when we see the thirsty, when we see the sick, when we see the imprisoned? Where does our heart and our mind go to? Is it, does it go to disgust or does it go to compassion? Because Christ calls us in the direction of compassion. Christ calls us in the direction of, of, of compassion. And even more so than that, he says this. Listen to those words. Heed those last words in Matthew chapter 25. For it's just as much as you did or just as much as you did not do for the least of these. For one of the least of these. You did it or you did not do it to me. That person on the street corner, that person who's sick, that person who is imprisoned, even though they have done wrong, even though maybe they be make, may be making life choices, is literally Christ in disguise. Christ in disguise. You want to know what it looks like to love and serve our neighbor? That's what it looks like. And we're never going to get all this stuff perfect. But this is where our hearts should be guided during these situations. Don't get mad at me. I didn't say it. Christ said this. These are the words of Jesus. A lot of times, oftentimes, the idea of actually loving our neighbors clashes with reality. We like to think that we love people. We like to think that we're we're pretty good. Most of us are pretty good. <laughs> but the real challenge of living into our call as Christians, number one, is to love and to serve all of those people that came into your minds a few minutes ago when I asked you who are the folks that rub you the wrong way. Same thing that we same thing applies to the scriptures, the people that we just read about in Matthew 25. Because here's the thing, Christians. Here's the thing, Christians. At the end of the day, Every Christian, every church, every Christian, every individual, every church is faced with answering one question. And this is what, this is our role. <laughs> this is our primary role on earth. We're faced with answering one question. How did I treat people? How did I treat people, even the ones that are difficult? That's the one question that we are faced with every single day. How did I show other people the kingdom of God today? How did I show other people what it looks like to be a follower, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? This is challenging. This is challenging. Let's challenge ourselves just a little bit more. And I'm going to try to wrap this up, guys, in about 10 minutes and move on to communion if I can. Let's challenge ourselves a little bit more. Let me draw your attention to a couple more scriptures um, from the book of James. And by the way, the book of James, you'll get, you'll get as you get to know me a little bit better, the book of James is one of my favorite, favorite books in the New Testament. James is one of the, one of the most challenging books, in my opinion, um, for me to put up as a mirror to see how I am living out my Christian life. Everybody, you know, James is the one that said faith, faith without works is dead and all that. If you think you're walking upright in your walk with Christ, I would not suggest reading the book of James because it will bring you back down to earth real, real quick. I want to look at a couple of scriptures and let's talk about a couple more types of people that are often overlooked, that are often overlooked. James 2, 1 through 4 
gives us the picture. Oh, and by the way, forgot to mention this to you. James is also traditionally believed to be a half-brother of Christ. I'm sure some of you guys probably knew that, but James, James is traditionally to believed to be the son of Mary and Joseph. Um, so he would have been the half-brother of Jesus. I tend to think that James knew what he was talking about. Um, he grew up with Jesus. He knew him. He knew how he thought. He knew how he acted. So when it comes to, when it comes to Scripture, and uh, particularly the New Testament, I tend to think that James uh, knows his stuff. But anyway, in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, this is powerful stuff, church. This is powerful stuff. This is, this is challenging stuff, and it challenges me, and I hope it challenges you. But James writes, writes this, and this is a horrible situation that's going on. This was, this was very, very common in the early church. James writes this. He says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and wearing fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing the fine clothes and you say, here, have a good seat, it's for you. But you say to the poor man, you stand over there, you sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil, evil thoughts? And he completes his thought, by the way, in verse 8. And he says, if you really keep the royal law found in scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing it right. James confronts our partiality. He confronts our favoritism. He, uh, he confronts us with our biases for or against other people. And if we're honest, we've all had them at some point in our lives. Maybe we still have some of them today. But that was, again, very common occurrence in the early church during this time. And we think how awful that is now. Surely it was, and surely it probably continues to be in a lot of places. But again, he confronts our favoritism for people. He confronts our, partia our partiality. There's no distinction Jesus shows us and James shows us there's no distinction, there's no preferential treatment for anyone. Christian love and hospitality is extended to everybody. Everybody created in the image of God. Everybody's treated equal. There's another example, another wonderful example that James gives us as to what it looks like to love our neighbors as ourselves at the end of chapter 1 as well. It's also very challenging for us. And it may be very confrontational for some of us. But that's what the gospel of Christ does. That's what the gospel of Jesus Christ does for us. It does confront us. It confronts our sin. It confronts our shortcomings. It confronts those areas where we suffer. Let me tell you this, folks. Scripture should convict us. Scripture is not just for the non-Christian, by the way. If we're really looking to grow in our Christian walk and our, in our sanctification, that big word that I used earlier, Scripture could, should continue to convict us. We, should, we could, con, should continue to have that pull on our hearts, by the way. That's what it does. It convicts us of our sins, and it confronts us. Again, James is very, very good at that. Anyway, James 1.27. James writes, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is what my version says. Some, some translations put it this way. They say pure and undefiled. Pure and undefiled religion. Looks like this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Pure religion. Pure religion, James says, authentically lived out discipleship to Jesus Christ. <laughs> looks like taking care of widows and orphans. 
By the way, most people also believe that Joseph died before Jesus began his ministry about the age of 30. So in the ancient Jewish culture, an orphan was not somebody who had lost both parents. An orphan was a person at least with one parent. So Jesus would have been an orphan. James would have been an orphan in that culture. Mary would have been a widow in that culture. James and Jesus would know very, very well the types of things that widows and orphans went through during that culture, in that culture. Throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, by the way, God really stands on the sides of orphans and widows and the marginalized, of course, that we read about in Matthew 25. This is where it gets really hard. It's easy to look the other way, folks. It's easy to look, look the other way and not get involved with people. It's inconvenient to be compassionate a lot of times. It challenges us. We often say that we believe in the idea of compassion all the way to the point where, where there's somebody that needs compassion shown to them. Let me remind you this. Indifference is sin. Y'all have heard those expressions, the, the sins of omission, the sins of commission, and the sins of omission. Indifference in these matters is sin. And I don't say this stuff to beat anybody up. I hope, I hope, I hope it, it convicts me every time I read it. And I hope it convicts you because my heart ain't always in the right place either, I assure you. But indifference towards people that created in the image of God, especially in these dire circumstances, is sin. It's a sin of omission. Here's a few facts that I wanted to point out to you as I wrap it up. Speaking of orphans, there are approximately 143 million orphans in the world today. One million orphaned children are trafficked annually in the sex trade. Eight million orphans are currently working as slaves. Over two and a half million orphans across the globe currently have HIV AIDS. How are we doing as Christ's body in the world, the church? Is our religion pure and undefiled? Speaking of widows, Studies show that widows lose 75% of their friendship network when they lose a spouse. 60% of widows experience serious health issues in the first year following the death of a spouse. One third of those meet the criteria for clinical depression in the first month. Most experience financial decline. And this is from an article that I read while studying for this sermon, the author wrote this. She said, one pastor described widows by saying that we move from the front row of the church to the back and then out the door. We move from serving and singing in the choir to solitude and silent sobbing. And then we move on to find a place where we belong. Pure and undefiled religion is to look after widows in their distress. Is our religion pure and undefiled? When we show compassion, when we show compassion, the world sees Christ, and they see the gospel in action. Forgiveness is wonderful. Being justified, reconciled to God that gives us our freedom is wonderful. I love it, and I'll preach it all day long. But there's a bigger part of being Christians 
There's that part that we live out our own earth, and that's just as important. I believe that's just as important in the eyes of Christ. I think Scripture points us to that, and that's what it looks like. That's what discipleship looks like, loving God, all heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving neighbor as yourself. This is hard stuff. This is hard stuff. But it's what we're called to be. It's what we're called to do. When we follow Jesus' greatest commandments, when we absorb the words of Paul from the Galatian scripture today, here's what's going to happen. We start to see God in others. We'll start to see God in other people, as Christ calls us. So again, I want to refer you back to our scripture from last week. And I challenge you to go back and to incorporate those words into your prayer life. Y'all remember them? Mark 12. Mark 12. I can't, I can't even remember the verses right now. 31 through 35, something like that. 29 through 32. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. And the second is just as important. Love your neighbor as yourself. Again, there's a starting point. There's a starting point for us. And I believe if we pray that, in all sincerity, God will start to mold our hearts. That's what God does. <laughs> That's what the Holy Spirit does. He changes us. Not just upon our initial point of salvation. I don't know about you guys, but he continues to change me today. And I'm grateful for it. And the more he changes me, the more I want to be changed even more. I think if you incorporate that into your prayer life, you'll see some change. You'll feel and you'll experience some real change in your life. Merciful God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the challenging words from Christ. We thank you for the challenging words from John. Thank you for the challenging words from Paul and James. God, we confess our shortcomings. We confess that we don't often love people like we should. First and foremost, we ask for forgiveness. And God, we ask that you would change our hearts, that you would mold us into the likeness of Christ, that we can show Christ to the world that we will reflect his image in all that we say, all that we think, and all that we do, that you might be glorified, that your kingdom might be known on earth. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.